Welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Not enough money, too many cooks, and an abundance of passion. Leading nonprofits isn't easy. Joan Gary, the dear Abby of nonprofits, gets it, and she is here to help. I, I saw this comment in a forum recently from this woman who was offered a director of development position for an organization with a one million budget just because she was on the event committee for a year. I really look for somebody who has a real passion for the mission. I think the passion for the mission kind of trumps everything. So I'm Joan Gary. Uh, today we tackle fundraising, but in a different sort of way than previous episodes. Here's the question I hear a lot. How does a very small nonprofit grow to be not so small. Readers of my blog describe this catch-22 all the time, and they describe it with both frustration and with eloquence. If we had the money, we could hire a development staff person, but without a development staff person, how do we raise the money? So I thought to myself, let's find the best person to talk about this. We need the best information on how small nonprofits can fundraise successfully and thus become not so small nonprofits. And to do that, I think you turn to the expert. So I turned to Pamela Grow, and yes, this is her real name. Pamela is the publisher of the Grow Report, the leading weekly e newsletter for the small shop fundraiser. She's the author of Simple Development Systems and the founder of Basics and More, fundraising fundamentals trainings delivered to over 4,000 nonprofit professionals. She's been helping small nonprofits raise dramatically more money for over 15 years and was named one of 30 most effective fundraising consultants by the Wall Street Business Network. Pamela, I read your news, your e-newsletter. You offer courses. You are really there for the small shop fundraisers. They are lucky to have you, and I'm very lucky that you have agreed to chat with us today. Welcome. Well, thank you, Joan. You know, I've been a huge, huge fan of yours for years, and I am thrilled to be here. Well, what I like is um, if you go to your website at PamelaGrow.com, what it says is, and listen up, all of you out there, Maximum fundraising results in minimum time for the one-person nonprofit development department. And when you think about the fact that there are 1.5 million nonprofits out there, so, so many of them fall into this category. So, so let's get to it. Small nonprofits can't hire development staff. They barely have enough money for basic program work and the most modest of operating expenses. What advice do you have? What's, what's the secret sauce here, Pamela? What's the best way to raise money so that you can get large enough so that you can bring someone on board? Well, that's, that's a really great question, Joan. And, and here's another, and that's where is the money? <laughs> because because we always think our first thought always tends to be that elusive million dollar foundation grant right that, that's going to save our ass but if we really look at charitable giving in the united states 80 percent of it comes from individuals right and i think it's like i think it's like 15 percent from foundation and five percent from corporate and when you think about it out of, out of the 80% from individuals, 
8% of that is from um, bequest plan giving legacy gifts, which is more than corporate funding. Yep. So that's what my work focuses primarily on. And that's where you should be focusing your attention is growing and building that base of individual support. And I, I think what a lot of organizations miss, and I see this even with, with larger organizations, with mid-sized organizations, figuring out your mission from your donor's perspective. Hmm. Tell me more about that. I'll give you a little example. Do you read Honey? I don't. You know, uh, Humans of New York, the blog? Oh, yes, yes, yes. I just, I just love Honey. I, I, I've, I've referenced it a lot because Brandon is just amazing at storytelling. And I saw this, I want to say, hmm, year or so ago, I saw, I saw something and it was a, his story of an ex-con trying to make it in New York. And someone posted underneath about this really great organization that helped ex-cons get a college education. And I looked it up and I said, this is really cool. And I very impulsively went over and made a $20 a month gift to this organization that I had never heard of prior. And you were not asked for that gift. And I was not asked for that gift. And you know what happened? Mm, no. Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing. So this this $20 gift is being deducted for you know from my my credit card. I'm getting dinged every month for a number of months and never heard anything. Never never got a thank you. Never heard anything about about what my my money was doing and finally I actually I called the executive director and we had a little conversation and he was I have to tell you he was a lovely man. Totally dedicated, dedicated, of course, dedicated to his mission, but he didn't seem to grasp that. And and I asked him about that post uh, on Honey, and he'd actually gotten a five hundred dollar unsolicited gift from someone in California. Well, there's 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 two things that that are really important to highlight here. One is the fact that you are a $20 unsolicited gift is, um, is way more. If you actually sit down, like if I, if I got a $500 unsolicited gift, I would, I would hunt that person down <laughs> like a dog to, yeah. to meet with them because a $500 unsolicited gift is a thousand dollar gift waiting to happen. But there's something else exactly. in what you there's not something else that's really important in what you said, which is, that organization was smart enough to take existing content out on the internet and tie it to their mission to make a donation. That was just plain smart. I mean, is that, is that the kind of thing that you talk about with, with your clients about how to begin cult, you know, uh, this whole notion of people saying, well, I want to start an individual giving program, but I don't know how to find the donors. Is that, you know, is that, the kind of strategy you recommend? Well, there are there are lots of places to start. We usually we start with our board members and their connections. Right. We we start with events, fundraising mixer type events, or even Benavon style events. Say in a board member's home, a small cocktail party, just to introduce people to your mission. Yep. And where so many people get in trouble with events is that they get on this event treadmill, though. They don't have a system in place for following up after the event, for turning those ticket buyers into donors. 
The um, I did an episode a few weeks back with uh, my friend Jason Burlingame, who runs a special event company, and we described um, special events, if you do them right, that the events themselves are, can be successful, but they're also bait. Yes, right? exactly. Exactly. And you need to have that system in place, how you're going to how are you going to turn those ticket buyers into regular donors? Because your whole goal here is is the lifetime donor, taking your donor from that initial $20 gift to maybe a $30 monthly gift. Yes. And and, and I think the, the other thing, Pamela, is that the um, – and, and I'm sure you experience this in working with organizations um, – the distinction between an event gift and an individual gift in terms of its potential longevity, that, um, that if you are selling someone a ticket to an event, it's, it feel, it, there's, there's more transaction to it. If I sit and, asks you, and ask you to make a $100 gift a month to, my ca- to a particular cause, I'm building a relationship with you that, if I do it right, sustains over time, Right. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that that's something that's one of the things that I work a lot with boards about is to help them understand the the distinction between those two things. It's really easy. It's a lot easier to ask somebody for to buy a ticket to an event than it is to ask someone to support a cause you care deeply about. But one one gift sticks and the other one doesn't. But I think you're absolutely right that if you use an event the right way that you then can do events and fundraisers afterwards where you can continue to build a relationship with the people who went to the event so that they get closer. You want to bring people closer and closer to your organization. Exactly. And, and when I, when I say about missing, missing the who, for instance, are you curious why I, why I gave that gift, that monthly gift of $20? I'm, I'm desperately curious. (laughs) Tell me why. Because because curiosity is really the key to great fundraising. Well, I worked I worked in politics in Michigan for ten years, and I worked for the chairman of corrections in the appropriations committee, and so I really got to see firsthand. I mean, well, you know, we've we've been hearing a lot finally about the incarceration problem in our country. Yes. And I remember seeing a lot of that firsthand 30, 35 years ago. We had one kid we worked with who was 17 and was in prison for life for an armed robbery where no one was killed or even shot at. Aye. But so so I, I am, I actually give to a couple of organizations that work with uh, ex, ex-offenders. So you have a person, so you have, you have a personal connection. Exactly. So finding out why your donors give, asking them. So let's assume that you're, um, uh, you're pulling a budget together for the upcoming year and you're trying to decide between uh, another program person and a development staff person. Talk to, to, talk to us about why, when, it, when is the right time to make that first development hire? You know, I, th- I think the right time to make that first development hire is, well, it's, it's never when with a huge sigh of relief and the thought that you can now wash your hands of the dirty work of fundraising because it just doesn't work that way. And, and what I'm starting to see, I, I, have a, I have a membership program as well um, 
And what I'm starting to see with a few of my members, small shop members who have started out as EDs doing all of the fundraising with no staff, is that they're bringing on board um, someone more in terms of donor care representatives. And for them, that first hire is someone who's primarily focused on stewardship, which is kind of interesting. And one of one of the organizations, she called it the donor and corporate relations manager. And 100% of her job is donor stewardship, engagement, and retention. Okay. And they, they have some on prospect cultivation. And they she, she started this, she hired this person, I want to say about two years ago. And now they have a development director as well as a part-time communications staffer. So, so I want to I want to bifurcate the two questions because I think it's um, so. There's there's the question of when is the organization ready for a development hire in these smaller shops, and then let's put a pin in the question of what should that person what what should you be looking for in that person so let's hold that one and come back when when do you believe an organization is ready to what's yeah what does an organization need to look like to be ready to say yes you should invest in a development person was what are the elements of an organization that's ready it's a great question, but I think it so much depends on the organization. We always want to put these blanket statements out there and these blanket answers, but it really depends on the organization and where they're at. So, so what about what about the you know what kind of executive director do you need? What does the board need to look like, right? When do you make the investment? How is it, does the organization have to be of a certain size? I mean, I get a lot of questions from people about I don't I don't think my I don't know if my board is ready to use a development direct a development staff person wisely. So, what kind of board do you need for a new hot for a? That's an that, interesting. That's an interesting way to put it. What do you mean use use wisely? So I believe that development is a um, is a team sport. I do too. Right, and that the development person becomes a bit of a quarterback. But if the rest of your team stinks, it doesn't matter whether you hire a good quarterback or not. You're just not going to win the game, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So you have to have a board. I think you have to have a board that. Um, um, that understands their obligation to fundraise and doesn't see the approval of that budget line item for a development person, as you described, the sigh of relief to take them off the hook. They have to recognize that there's a partnership that has to be developed there, that that new person will not be successful if if you do not have a board that is ready, willing, and able to look through their sphere of influence for connections that might lead to not that big donor, but those you know smaller donors, or might say, yes, I will open up my home for a small fundraiser, right? Exactly. Right. So I think those are you know to me, um, you need an organization that is not. Uh, is ready to participate with your development hire, whatever that might look like. So I think that's kind of, to me, that's kind of the, what what that first hire, um, your organization is ready for that first hire when your organization is is ready to partner with that first hire. 
Exactly. Is your are a hundred percent of your board members giving? So you make that higher, right? Think about all the different aspects of fundraising in a small shop, right? Um, you you go webmaster, grant writer, individual giving manager, steward, uh, event planner, major gift fundraising, um, and you get one bite of the apple. You get to make one hire. What are the attributes if it was your shop? and you had to hire that first person, what kinds of things would you be looking for in terms of skills? Not just skills and not just experience, but attributes. You, you really need to recognize that you're never going to build that long-term future on the short-term thinking. And I, I saw this comment in a forum recently from this woman who was offered a director of development position for an organization with a $1 million budget just because she was on the event committee for a year I really look for somebody who has a real passion for the mission. That feels important. I think the passion for the mission kind of trumps everything. I wouldn't discount somebody with a sales background. Some of the best major gift officers I've known have come from a background in sales. I myself actually came from a background in sales. I was in advertising for advertising sales for two years. Oh, interesting. And it was... Actually, I went back to those experiences more times than um, more times that I can can even tell you. It was better than any fundraising workshop I've ever taken. Um, I do think you want to look for a multitasker for that very first hire. I've talked before about how I've been the fifth development director in three years. <laughs> tell me more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the thing is, when you're hired as the fifth development director in three years, you can see that I still remember finding, you know, some one person was hired on the basis of their strength with foundation funding. And so that's all that particular person did. Another person was hired on the strength for their event planning. So that's all their that that person did and everything else kind of fell by the wayside. And you do have to be a supreme multitasker. It is a totally different job when you're you're a small shop fundraiser, small shop development director. Now, how many how many staffers did you have when you were at Glad for your development department? I'm trying to remember. We started. We were about one point four million dollars on paper, as I like to describe it, the paper we really couldn't afford because we had $360 in the bank and a quarter of a million dollars in debt. And so I think I had three or I probably had three people in the development department that I really couldn't afford. And our approach was individual fundraising. We needed to get out of debt fast and I had one of those three people was very good at individual giving fundraising. And my board was very ready to hand over prospects. And so we just got in front of a lot of people and raised a lot of money fast. But, you know, I recognized that the organization, even though it, it wasn't new, um, and that I had board members that had significant contacts. And that's not always the case. So, um, but I think this, this multitasking thing is important. And I also, you know, you start in sales. I think it's really an interesting thing to think about. Um, long ago, my wife had said to me, uh, before I got into nonprofits, you know, you should go into sales. I was like, no, no, I don't want to do that. 
And she said, well, you don't really understand that the sales is not like about shoving something down someone's throat they don't want. Sales is about relationship building. Exactly. Good sales. Yeah, that's what the sales that matter and the sales that last. Yes. You bet. You bet. And so so you need a multitasker. And what's the, what are the attributes? I mean, uh, you said to me before we started that you were an introvert, which I'm not totally buying. But... Um, <laughs> But, you know, so what, what's the, what are the, what are the attributes? What kind of person is successful in this multitasking role? I think you're also looking for someone with some leadership ability because otherwise you're, you, you, you need to be leading your board. You need to be leading even your executive director. You, you need to be detail oriented. You need to keep those metrics front and center of everybody at all times. You know, you need to know your donor retention rate. You need to know what's coming in. I, um, I used to do something when, I, when we would hire a development staff called the, <laughs> the lunchtime sniff test. Is that someone would bring me uh, a candidate and I would spend 20 minutes with them as if I was having a cup of coffee with them. And, um, if I found myself looking at my watch, we didn't hire them. <laughs> and if I thought to myself, you know, this is actually really fun and engaging and interesting. And I'm learning a little bit more about the sector and about this person's passion. And I, you know, um, you know, and it was actually a real conversation and I thought, oh, I could spend another 10 minutes. That person was way more likely to get the job. Right. So I think the notion of, you know, do you give good lunch? <laughs> do, do you give good lunch? And also that, that other factor of curiosity. I think the best fundraisers are really curious. Curious about people. Curious about your mission, about your work in the community. Curious. For our listeners, just to remind you, we're listening, uh, we're having a really nice conversation here with Pamela Grow. Um, Pamela Grow's tagline on her website at PamelaGrow.com, which you should absolutely visit because we've got a, you'll see a blog there. Um, she has an e-newsletter, which should be in your email inbox uh, every week um, and is now doing a whole series of workshops and courses um, for these small shop, for the, for the small shop fundraiser, uh, for the small shops who, you know, they can't send their folks to conferences, but you can certainly send them to PamelaGrow.com where they don't have to actually leave the office for a couple of days and, um, and come back to, uh, three times the amount of work that they left behind, which was four times than they actually could handle. <laughs> so, um, so I'm going to read you a question that, I, at a, that a, um, um, that someone sent me actually just this morning. Um, and, um, it, it seemed like I should forward it to you. So instead I'm going to ask you in our last question, <laughs> in our last question of this chat. Um, it's just, the writer reads a topic we're working through now is how to create a culture of philanthropy within our organization and for all staff to recognize that they have a role in fundraising, awareness building and relationship building. Our staff is truly wonderful, but many have worked here for decades and have always done it a certain way, a way that did not include taking ownership for the financial stability of the organization. So as our last question here, 
Any thoughts, sort of what's the, any specific pieces of advice for the listeners today about how to get your organization on board, how to make them think about themselves as ambassadors um, and to build a culture of fundraising? Changing your organization's culture really takes some time. It takes some patience. It takes some persistence. Um, there's little things you can do every day, every week. One of one of the eye-opening experiences for me was, I want to say it was about five years ago, and I attended a branding workshop on behalf of a client I was working with at the time. And it was a boring workshop. I don't remember much about it, but I do remember about midway in when we gathered into groups to share our stories. And it turned out that one of the groups that was there was actually, they'd actually sent program staff. And this was an organization that worked, I think it was a battered women's shelter. And I think they'd actually sent the program staff because their fundraising staff at the last minute couldn't attend. But it was such an eye-opening experience for those two people to see what a difference their stories made in the success of fundraising. Yes. And they couldn't wait to go back. So that's part of why I incorporated, if in my basics and more courses, I say up to seven people from your organization can sign up for any particular class because... It's really important that everyone understands this thing called fundraising and it's fundraising's fun. So I really like the idea of integrating a short training into every staff and board meeting. Um, One tool that I use is a book called How to Train Your Board and Everyone Else to Raise Money. Do you have that one? Uh, I don't. would, Would listeners find that at Amazon? Sure. Andy Robinson and Andrea Kilstead. Fabulous book. It's got about 20, 30 trainings. Excellent. We'll add it to the episode notes for the, um, for the podcast so people can uh, find that link. An- another thing I used to do as a development director, I always had like a little, you, you know, you're familiar with my grow report. I did something similar for board members where I'd send out a little just a little email to all the board members every week. And I touch base on what we were doing. Um, maybe send them some people, some, some donors names to thank. Um, also foundation contacts to see if they, they knew of any send out links to some of the best fundraising articles. Um, ask program staff members, their advice. Very nice. A very nice idea. Yeah, I think I do believe that continuing to enrich staff and board about the work of the organization, it gets so taken for granted, right? And it now ends up becoming so separated from the, we need to raise, you know, another $10,000. Why? Why do we need it, right? If you're not, if you're not explaining to me why, if you're not telling me a story about what we could do if we had another $5,000, right? Like, like I'm not going to be all that motivated to go looking or to, you know, and I think, so I, I do think that you're right that, um, that this notion of, um, enriching your organization 
the development director taking on the role of working with the staff and the board to enrich them about the work, to enrich them about, I mean, you say fundraising is fun. You know, when I do trainings, I find, you know, board members use words like, they don't you often use words like fun. They, no. No, they use words like terrifying. You know, it's like, yeah, you know. But if you if you get yourself really, if you're on the board for the right reason and you're really excited about the and really passionate about the organization and you hear one story that gives you goosebumps, you go out of that board meeting fired up and ready to go. And the same is true with staff. You know, totally. when you can make the person at the who's copying checks realize that that check isn't just a check, but it's a rent check for a homeless person that your organization is finding housing for, right? Then it's a completely different, it's a, it's a totally different activity. Oh, exactly. Yeah. We are actually just about out of time. Um, you need to come back. We need to talk about some more things. I would love that. Yeah. In the, so in the meantime, um, uh, thank you so much, Pamela, for joining us. Um, I'm Joan Gary. You can find me and my blog at joangary.com. And if you enjoyed the podcast, I hope that you will take an extra minute and um, uh, give it a rating and a review um, so that more people will find us and uh, benefit from the, uh, the wisdom and uh, good advice of the folks that, we, that join us every week. Pamela, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Joan. Nonprofits Are Messy is a service of Joan Gary Consulting. Widely known as the Nonprofit Dear Abby, Joan's leadership blog reaches over 40,000 unique visitors monthly from over 150 countries. Subscribe at www.joangary.com.